Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Take your Bibles this morning and open to the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah will be in chapter 6 this morning. And I want us to spend just a few moments talking about beholding glory, our motivation for gospel mission. Beholding glory, our motivation for gospel mission. And I want to begin by asking a simple question. Have you ever seen something that so captivated you that it changed you? Have you ever seen something that so captivated you that it changed you? Now, in a small way, I'll use this illustration. I can remember one of the first times that I was driving to the Rocky Mountains to go snow skiing, and you come through that wasteland known as eastern Colorado, and all of a sudden you come in and you can begin to see the outline. It looks like clouds at first, but then you realize, no, that's the mountain range. And there's a glory about seeing that landscape that is like none other. Uh, I've been in in Tennessee and on the border of North Carolina in the Smoky Mountains. And I've seen why they get their namesake, Smoky Mountains, because first thing in the morning, there's a smoke that rises from the mountain, and hence they're called the Smoky Mountains. But there's a beauty out there that captivates you. Landscapes have a way of capturing us by their own beauty and changing us by just seeing the beauty of that. In a very small way that illustrates what I want to talk about this morning, what we want to look at in the sixth chapter of Isaiah, a vision that so captures this man's mind and heart and life that it changes him forever. What I want you to walk away with today is this, that a grand vision of God's glory produces a ready sacrifice to serve God's mission. A grand vision of God's glory produces a ready sacrifice to serve God's mission. Let's go to the text this morning. I'm going to read the first eight verses of Isaiah 6 before we continue. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. I want to look at five moves through the literature today 
that reveal to us a true motivation for Christian mission. A true motivation for how it is that we serve God with him on his mission. And that first that first move comes simply from the context of, of what I would call historical despair. The first phrase that he begins with is that in the king or in the year that King Uzziah died. You see, a context of historical despair is the way that Isaiah introduces what has become known as his call passage. In the, a time of social chaos and political upheaval, a, uh, excuse me, I'm going to get it out in just a moment. Isaiah introduces to us a period in the life of Judah that, that was changing. The, the season was shifting for them, if you would, because King Uzziah had died. Now, who was King Uzziah? Well, he was the king of Judah from 792 B.C. to 740 B.C. 52 years he was the king. And that's in a season of time that many people didn't live to see 52 years of their whole life, let alone have a rule of this length. He became king when he was 16 years old. Doesn't that strike you at just the perfect age when all perfect wisdom and knowledge has culminated in the mind and heart at just the right time he's made king, right? Something like that. He served for the first 24 years as a co-king with his father Amaziah. And the reason that they had done this is so that not knowing how Amaziah would be able to survive and struggling with some of his own health issues, they would go ahead and install Uzziah as a co-king so that when Amaziah did pass, there would be no transition to a new king and the prosperity and the security could continue. And then the last 10 years of his life, as we'll see in a moment, he was also ruling with his son, Jotham. Uzziah's kingdom was characterized by two principal qualities, prosperity and security. Prosperity and security. It is said that the security and prosperity of Uzziah's kingdom, of his rule and reign, was second only to King Solomon himself. Now we know Solomon took the throne after King David and David expanded the kingdom to expanses that had never been seen before. It was its largest under King David. But when Solomon took over as king, he expanded the wealth or the prosperity of the kingdom to an extent that was untouched, has never been touched since. As a matter of fact, what modern day, not philosophers, historians and theologians say about the riches of King Solomon are unfathomable in even their measure of today's economic measurements. In other words, the wisdom, or excuse me, the riches of Solomon compared at the top of what we would consider riches even today in our economic standards. And so when Uzziah came into his throne, he was inheriting this and he continued uh, to look at his kingdom. There was great advancement, great development. He built cisterns and large towers out in the desert places so that the uh, nomadic people as they're taking their herds around would have more places to find water, to find shelter, and to find safety in the middle of the wilderness and things of that nature. So 
His entrepreneurship was unmatched in many ways. And it is said that originally he was very humble towards God for most all of his reign. But for some reason, towards the end, he committed a sin that turned his whole life and his legacy downward. He defiled the temple by presuming the priestly role. And instead of having the priests go and offer the sacrifice and, and offering up the prayers, he stepped in and did it himself. And because he did this, he was stricken with leprosy. And lepers spent their day, even if they were king, spent their days excluded in seclusion away from all the other people. And there he lived for 10 years by himself before he died. You see, the king who brought great security and increasing prosperity to the nation had also fallen greatly. And the years of his seclusion were bringing a weakened and a waning hope about what might be for the future of their nation because of the pending people, nations around them that were threatening their overthrow. But praise be to God, History never determines when it's the right time to serve God. And that's what Isaiah teaches us here. History cannot define God's importance, nor can it fathom his purpose. And so at a time in history when the king and all of his prosperity and potentially his security was waning with him, where was God? He was on his throne, high and lifted up. What history can do for us is give us a sense of precedence to prepare for what I would call the punch of God's call when he appears. You see, even the people of God had a propensity to be overwhelmed with the reality of history and what was taking place. But Isaiah would learn something in this passage that is revealed for us as well about God himself right in the midst of the heaviest and the hardest and darkest grief, God shows up majestically and magnificently to reveal himself. And that leads us to the second move where we see a vision of holy glory. In the second part of verse one through verse four, he goes on to say, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. Isaiah saw the Lord. Let that sink in for just a moment. This isn't something that was just standard protocol for even Isaiah in his day. Rather, it was very unique. But what he's learning here and what he introduces to us in verse 1 is that the dark outlook of the nation was not too much to suppress the brilliant glory of God in his appearing. Isaiah didn't fabricate the vision. He could only behold it. And so in the midst of a looming threat of other worldly powers awaiting to overthrow Judah and, and the loss of their continued prosperity and what may happen, the same question comes that has always come to people in the midst of these situations that even gets asked today. It's simply this, where is God? Where is God? When hope seems to be waning, when, when promise seems to be lost in the world and the future looks darker than the past, how quickly we are to ask, where is God? But listen, 
Isaiah says this, there was no question where God was when the vision took hold. It was very obvious where God was. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. And where was he? He was on his throne, where he always is. Unimpacted in his sovereignty by the world events. Unmoved by the threats that they considered significant, but that were no threat to his sovereignty High and lifted up was the Lord. And it says the train of his robe filled the temple. This isn't just to say that man, he had a really big robe, but what is being communicated to us here is the grandeur and the overwhelming presence of the vision that Isaiah had of God on his throne. In other words, the vision said to Isaiah that that he didn't look in every nook and cranny of the temple, but he didn't have to because the presence of God and the vision that he was having was so majestic and so glorious that there couldn't have been a nook or cranny hidden from the presence of God within the temple. All of who God was filled all of the temple. There was no place, if you will, for any other God, any other idea even to exist he was high and lifted up his presence filled the temple and it says he was surrounded by seraphs now that word for seraphs is a title for angels but it is a title a word that literally means burning ones that's an interesting imagery when you think that the holiness and the righteousness of God is principally represented in the scriptures by a burning fire A burning presence. As a matter of fact, the Old Testament tells us that our God is a burning, consuming fire. This is what he was. And even those who served him, the angels that surrounded his throne that served him, were burning ones representing the one they served. Each of them had six wings. With two wings, they covered their face. Why? Because it wasn't important who they were. The importance was why they were there. Two of their wings covered their feet. It didn't matter where they were going or even what they were about doing. What mattered was the one they were serving. And serving they did as two other wings gave them flight to accomplish the work that the one they served and the only one they served had given them to do. And there was a testimony, a confession, if you will, that one would call out to another and then that one to another and that one to another. And the single, ongoing, unceasing confession of the seraphim was this. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Once, no, not once, unceasingly, eternally. We can only imagine, but we can imagine to capture a glimpse of the vision that Isaiah saw. You see, the Lord's glory, friends, was not just a matter of glorious vision, but it was the impact of his presence that was felt too. He goes on to tell us the whole place shook, not from the top down, but from the bottom up. The house was not being torn down by some exterior force pressed upon it, but it was being raised up to match its 
filling up by the one that was in it. And within it, he tells that there was a smoke that filled the house. It was not a smoke that chokes you out, if you will, but rather a smoke that introduces the glory of the one that is being presented. There was a presence of glory that was filling every cubic inch of the temple. And it was God in his presence. Friend, God doesn't need darkness to outshine anything. When he shows up, he is the most brilliant glory of all glories. Do you see that? When Isaiah saw the Lord in his holy glory, it tells us he not only saw a vision of God, but it takes us to our next move in the text to verse 5, and we see a clearer vision of himself. There is a response of sinful confession that is our third move a response of sinful confession Isaiah's immediate response to the glorious vision of God's holiness was not wow it was woe was not wow it was woe and this is important friends because when he got a clear picture of the glory of God and the magnitude that was overwhelming to him the immediate vision of his own life that he had was of his utter sinfulness His response is, woe is me. I am lost. I am lost. That word for woe in the text is the most uh, significant word of warning that the text provides in all of the scriptures. As a matter of fact, when you go into the New Testament, Jesus gives seven woes to the religious leaders of the, the people in that day. They are the heaviest words of warning and even condemnation that are issued in the text. Why? Because they're spoken from a place of holiness and from righteousness from God. And this is what Isaiah is struck by. He's struck by that righteousness of God. And he says of his own life, woe is me, I'm lost. I am lost. He sees not only his sin, but the sin of his people too. Why is that important? Because God was calling him to take a message of repentance to the people, to turn to God, and he had to be clear on their sin as well. But he dealt specifically with his sin. It says that he saw his own sin, and the reason he gave was because he had seen the Lord. There's a direct correlation between capturing a vision of God's glory and a clear understanding of one's own sin. That's what the text is telling us here. Maybe most importantly, though, is the way that he frames his sin. Is the way he frames it. In other words, his understanding of his sin that he's overwhelmed by. There's no argumentation over whether it's sin. Oh, Lord, you know, I, I hear you convicted me of that sin, but is that really sin? I know what you said, but did you mean it in that way? Or maybe you just failed to understand what I meant when I committed that sin. I didn't really mean it against you. It was kind of something I didn't think much about. And, you know, there's no argumentation. There's no uh, reasoning with God why his sin was okay. There was no argument over, was my sin really that bad? It's just simply a response, friends. Woe is me. I'm lost. Isaiah was undone by his sin. Why? Because you don't stand in the presence of God's glory and remain unaffected. How do you meet with God and walk away unchanged? Refuse to see him, that's how. 
You don't stand in the presence of God's glory and remain unmoved. How do you see the King of glories, the King of kings and the Lord of lords and still harbor those little idols? You just refuse to look. That's how. You don't behold. You look away. You don't stand in the shaking of God's glory and remain intact. That's what Isaiah teaches us. I am lost. I am a man undone. You see, friends, sin that so easily entangles always gets exposed by the brilliant glory of God's holiness. God never meets with us personally, corporately, or otherwise where sin is not exposed, where our invitation to confess and repent is not offered, and his forgiveness and cleansing freely given when we confess. The more of God's glory you behold, the more clearly you will see your sin and the more deeply your soul will cry out, woe is me. This takes us to the next move of verse six where we see a cleansing of holy righteousness. And he says that once one of the seraphim took a coal from the fire with tongs and brought it and touched his lips with the coal. You see, at Isaiah's confession, the seraphim acts. Here's what we can understand from that. That the God who is holy, who is high and exalted and lifted up, is not the God who remains distanced when his people confess their sins. He is a God ready to forgive, ready to cleanse. And that's why there's immediacy at Isaiah's confession for the seraphim to act. He demonstrates God's own readiness to cleanse us from our sin. And so with the burning coal from the altar, taken with tongs, he touches the mouth of Isaiah, where his confession had come to, I'm a man of unclean lips. The coal came and touched his lip. It took away his guilt and it removed the stain that sin had put on him. There's no question this was not a pleasant experience. No burning coal touched a human flesh is a pleasant experience, but the cleansing from it was a most satisfying one. We know that from Isaiah's response. You see, friends, the way that God prepares his people to be used for his service is not to pump us up with some kind of super measure of self-greatness. Rather, it's by a powerful cleansing from his holy atonement. And this so often gets so confused for us because when God touches a life to cleanse from sin, it's never just a generic wave of power that he gives. Oh, don't worry about that sin. This is not Obi-Wan or some other force that's waving his hand to change everything magically or sweep the sin under the magic rug of, of, of removal or whatever it may be. No, Isaiah confessed he was a man of unclean lips and the seraphim took the coal with tongs. It's interesting to listen to some of the scholars argue about why he took tongs. Why does one being of fire need to take up a coal of fire? I mean, you burn fire? That doesn't make sense. Now, I'll tell you why. Because the coal was a cleansing coal from the fire of God, and one who's not confessed has no business with the coal of God's cleansing, but the one who has confessed receives it immediately where the confession came from. 
His lips got touched by the cleansing of God because his confession identified his sin at that point. You see that? The specificity of confession brings the nature of God's cleansing and his holy atonement to bear upon our life. There is a specific act that God does to cleanse us from sin that meets the specific confession that we offer to him. God is the one who makes you ready to serve his glory by his holy cleansing that comes from his atonement. You see, far too often, there's far too much of preparation for serving God that has far too little to do with God's touch of cleansing from sin. We think, well, we're gonna do something for God. We're gonna serve him in some way. We, we seek out a skill that we can improve upon to offer him something that we, can, that we can build up or conjure up from our own life. We seek to gain or even to sharpen a gift. Paul tells us in the New Testament that we ought to desire the greater gift. So shouldn't we seek after a gift and sharpen it uh, 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 greatly for God? Isn't that a way that we would serve him? We seek to focus on growing an audience or increasing our influence. So what we have learned and what we want to say about God can come greatly among people in, uh, for, for the purpose of God. But listen, when God, who is the only one who prepares a life to serve his mission in the world, prepares that life, it is an intimate individual cleansing identified by the specific confession that is made in response to a vision of God's glory. Friends, listen, this is the way God works. The more clearly you see and confess your sin, the more quickly you will experience God's cleansing upon it. And the removal of sin's stain and the washing from sin's guilt by God's righteous atonement. There is no measure of skill. There is no amount of gifting. There is no preponderance of influence or even certitude of being that will ever measure in God's magnitude. Only cleansing that comes from God prepares us to serve God. There's an interesting thing that transpires here that, that we've just seen. That when he first saw this vision, it was God who was present. He was high. He was what you might call transcendent. He was larger than life, larger than all of creation. And he was present and he was there. And immediately his response, as we saw in the next move, is that, that, that there was this confession that came that, whoa, that's God, but this is not God. That I am I, I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm lost. I'm undone. And the grandeur and the separation between Isaiah and God exists until the confession comes and immediately what was transcendent becomes imminent. That the bigness and the separateness and the farness of God all of a sudden becomes very intimate. God comes near to Isaiah. Isaiah doesn't go near to God. God comes to him. And friends, what started as little more than a horizon of glory for eternity becomes immediate before the face of Isaiah. God comes personally 
to him. This just got really up close and personal. And that leads us to verse 8, the next move. A willing sacrifice, fully surrendered. The coal has touched his lip. His sin has been atoned. His guilt has been removed. And what transpires next? But he says this, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah said, Here I am. Send me. Once prepared, he hears God's call for who he will send. Now released from sin's bondage, Isaiah responds, here I am, send me. And the, the, the literary imagery that is being shared with us here is not one of, 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 of Isaiah going, well, if you can't find anybody else, I guess I will do it, some of it, maybe, if I show up. That's not the way that he's signing up. No, what it is communicating to us here through the languages is it's telling us Isaiah stood before God and he didn't know if God was still looking his way or not. But with his whole life and energy expended, he's going, God, please choose me. Please. Waving his arms and trying to gain the attention of God. He's trying to say, God, would you use me for this moment, for this purpose, for your mission? And while he may not have known it, God had already had his attention gotten by Isaiah. Not through the flailing of his arms or the crying out by his voice, but the simple confession of his sin. You see, friends, it's the humble confession of sin that gets God's attention. When we say yes to God, we we need not expend the whole of our being because the whole of God's being just got attuned to us. It's the humble confession that garners all of God's attention to us. And that's what is transpiring here. While God's call likely reverberated over the whole of creation, who will go for us? It was particular to two ears and one heart of Isaiah. Isaiah probably thought he was one, but of millions or billions that were hearing the call and he was trying to get chosen for the moment. What he didn't know is that God had already sent a call out for the one that he had just cleansed. For friends, the one who's been cleansed from sin by God is the same one who is commissioned to go for God. There is no vision of God that you behold where you confess your sin to God and receive his cleansing and do not hear the call of God to go. And any call you hear that in any way tries to remove the step of confession or anything else is always a call that didn't come from God, but from somewhere else. You see, now cleansed and set free, Isaiah is fully surrendered and ready to go as a willing sacrifice. For the more of God's glory that you behold, the more of your life you will let go to serve God's mission. Jesus says it this way to his disciples in Mark chapter 8, verse 35. Whoever would save his life will lose it. 
But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel will save it. You see, the willingness of our living sacrifice is always dependent upon the beholding of God's majesty, upon the cleansing from our sin by God's atonement, and from the call of God that empowers and authorizes our going. And this is what we see. And friends, that's the very point of today's message. A grand vision of God's glory produces a ready sacrifice to serve God's mission. This whole day by design is set aside to focus on the missional strategy of our church to pray, to invest, and to engage. And if you see a card today that says pie on it, it's not a dessert social that we're planning, but we are having a picnic. No, friends, it's, a, it's an emphasis on praying and, and, and asking God, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven as we are taught to pray by our Lord Jesus himself. Investing is the, the giving away of our life. and for, for the one who has saved us did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So we humble ourselves to serve the mission of God's kingdom and, and see our lives offered up as we invest them into the work of God's kingdom in this world. We see them used for God's glory. And to engage to engage with the gospel of Jesus Christ, to, to share the good news of hope that we have in the salvation of, our, uh, of Jesus Christ from our sin and the cleansing that comes with that, to make sure that we share and to serve it with other people. And, and to, this afternoon, we're going to look at, at, at many of the uh, activities that we have on the back that, quite frankly, we feel like God has led us to. Today, we're going to pray that he would lead us through those things. But before we get to all of that, there's something of far greater importance because all of our energies, all of our abilities, all of our giftings compressed together against all of that will matter none for the kingdom. Unless first and foremost... We've seen a vision, heard a voice from God that calls us to the work. And so this morning I begin by asking each of us, how ready and willing are you to offer a willing sacrifice of full surrender to serve God's kingdom mission in this season? How ready and willing are you to offer a willing sacrifice of full surrender to serve God's kingdom mission in this season. Friends, do you know who sees a vision of God's glory? Surely we could walk away from this text and go, wow, that was something. That was really something that Isaiah saw. Do you know who sees a vision of God's glory? Only those who want to. Only those who want to. But anybody that wants to. God will be faithful that you would behold him. You see, it won't be Isaiah's vision. It will be your own. Same God. Same impact. Personal to you. And when God reveals himself by the good news and the glory of who he is, the question will become, what will your response be? Oh God, you're good. Let's get to work. No, because that's not a true beholding of glory. The true beholding of glory is one of confession. And by that confession, 
comes our preparation for what he wants to do in us. You see, God's not just out to use us and get something done through us. God's out to do a great work in us so a great glory can be beheld by us. But you've got to look to him this morning for a grand vision of his glory will produce a ready sacrifice to serve his mission. And so I conclude in this way. As the worship team returns, I ask you, will you look up and behold the one who was raised up for you? Who willingly laid down his life that he might be crucified and laid in the, and laid in the tomb that he would be resurrected on the third day and raised So that when you confess your sin, the Spirit of God comes as the actual presence of God to take from you your guilt, your stain, and your shame of sin and to give you the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, His Son. That's the invitation today. Will you behold the one who stands before you to reveal the glory of the ages and let your life be forever changed by Him. Let's pray.